Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 21 where we finished last week. Paul is about to end his more predominantly doctrinal-focused message to the Galatians before he breaks in chapter 5 to discuss some more practical matters. You'll see in chapter 5 he starts with, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Paul's normal manner was to give a discourse of what we know and then break into how that affected daily living. Basically, what Christ has done for us and then move in to then what we are to do, being motivated by the doctrines of grace, what we are to do in service to God. Well, Paul is going to sum up his argument with an allegory that he pulls from the Old Testament. This is actually the only allegory that we find in the entire Bible explicitly called an allegory. This is the only one. Now, sometimes we can see where we may have types and shadows in the Old Testament, a type or a shadow meaning something that was an image to show something that was coming after it. You have a type and then an anti-type. Most of the types in the Old Testament, for instance, a lamb being slaughtered was fulfilled in the anti-type of Jesus Christ. Um, so it had an emblem or a symbol. Here it's different because this allegory is an illustration that was supposed to give a one-to-one -one ratio. It was supposed to say this meant that, this meant that. And we have to be very careful in how we interpret the Old Testament because sometimes you can kind of make anything out of it, right? Whose imagination is best? <laughs> you know, why did the chicken cross the road? And we can say, well, the chicken's the gospel, and one side of the road is the Gentiles, the other side is the Jews. We can make something out of anything. Well, we are safe when we study the Old Testament and the New Testament to see where Jesus Christ, where the Apostle Paul, where Peter, where the other apostles made a reference and said, this is fulfilled in the New Testament. And here we have an immediate example, an illustration, an allegory that is given to us that is meant to symbolize everything that he has been presenting to them from this point forward. You see, even Paul used illustrations. He goes from discussing experience, examples in the New Testament, to discussing his own ministry among them, He's combating the problems that existed among the churches there in the area of Galatia. He's focusing on a scriptural example here as he gives an illustration, an allegory, that he is going to focus and kind of drill into them before he moves on. He's going to say, look at this image and pick which one you consider your, as he would say, your mother. Let's begin reading in verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid, the other by a free woman. 
But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is free, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not, break forth and cry. Thou that travailest not, for thou for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. May God bless the reading of his word to our ears. Here in verse 21, Paul is finishing his thesis to them with this allegory or this illustration. And he asks a question to them to kind of solicit a reaction. You know, when preachers ask questions in the pulpit, they're not doing it just to be cute or to be coy or to be funny. We typically really do want the hearers in the congregation to contemplate the message. When we ask a question and hear when Paul says, tell me, he's wanting them to consider what he's about to say from this vantage point. Everything that is embodied in this allegory is supposed to answer this question. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? He's asking them, you that are wanting to be under the old Mosaic covenant and not following God from the New Testament covenant, the covenant that is no longer built on physical tablets of stone, but on the tablets of your heart that God has imprinted His law, you that are wanting to go back under an old, wore-out system that genders to bondage, you who want to go back under that, do you not hear it? Do you not hear what it is saying to you? He's basically telling them to follow the logical conclusion of what you're asking. Consider what you're saying in light of where it leads you to. You know, the wages of sin is death. In other words, what sin brings forth, wages, what it profits, what it pays us is death. That's telling us the end of a certain action brings a certain wage. Here he's saying there's an end to the law that you have to consider if you're wanting to pull yourself back underneath it. There's an end that you're not considering when you're telling individuals that believers in Jesus Christ, yes, it is by grace, but it is by Jesus Christ. However, now, I don't believe it is by grace, comma. I believe it is by grace, Period, right? <laughs> it's not, it is by grace, but it is by grace, however. It is by grace, 
Well, no, it is by grace, period. Because if you put a comma after that and continue with anything else further and say, it is by grace, now you must, you are taking it from the realm of God's sovereign ability to save and then putting it into a place that genders into bondage, into strife. It genders into this view of slavery. And this is what Paul is saying. Consider the end of your own logic. Consider your own thinking. People don't like to follow the end conclusion of what they're saying sometimes, right? People like to think, no, this is my answer. I don't care what anybody else says, and I don't care your logic is bad. I'll tell you, logic was given to us for a reason. We're the only sentient beings that God created. I love animals. And, you know, some of them can figure out some small things here or there, but we're the only ones that really have the ability to fully give logical thought, appreciation, and consider these type of arguments. In other words, God gave us a brain, so let's use it. Amen? <laughs> God gave us intellect. And Paul is saying, consider what I'm telling you. Don't just check your senses at the door. Don't just check your mind at the door, but think about the end result of your own doctrine and theology. He says, tell me ye that desire to be under the law. Do ye not hear the law? He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, here he says, do ye not hear the law, for it is written? He's going to quote from the first five books of the Bible, from the book of Moses, basically. The first five books, those books that were written by Moses, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid and the other by the free woman. He's quoting from two different chapters in Genesis, Genesis chapter 16 and Genesis chapter 21. Two different chapters he is bringing our attention to to let us know that there is an allegory that he's going, an illustration he is going to use from the Old Testament built on this principle. Now, we have to recognize Abraham had more than just two sons. He had multiple sons after Sarah passed away with but for the purpose of this illustration, he's going to use one, Isaac, the promised seed. It was through Isaac that his seed was called, the promised seed, and then another child of his. And when it says he had two sons, one by the bondmaid and the other by the free woman, he's naming first Hagar, or as it is translated into the New Testament, Agar, you have the bondwoman, basically a slave, basically Sarah's servant, and then you have Sarah who was his wife, the free woman. And we're given these examples that he's going to use as an allegory in verse 24, but I want us to go and look at the Old Testament and see what happened there in Genesis chapter 16, because we very well know the story of Isaac, right? His name means laughter. His name basically embodies this view of happiness. You have Sarah who, Romans chapter 4 says that her uh, body was dead to bring forth a child. And so when Isaac comes on the scene, the seed of promise, we understand that to embody this happiness, this happy sense that God has fulfilled His promise to Abraham and to Sarah. Laughter. 
I've told one of my children, and you can figure out which one it is, that I should have named him Isaac because he never stops laughing. He came out laughing, and he continues to laugh. <laughs> he takes after his daddy. And, you know, it is, laughter embodies happiness. Well, Ishmael, the child that came from Hagar, embodies a different principle. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, we see it reads, Now Sarai, Abraham, Abram's wife, this was before God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah. Now Sarai, Ab Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. That's Agar as we read in Galatians. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain child by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. We see this example being used by Paul, but the narrative in the New Testament is quite intriguing because you have a promise given by God to two elderly individuals. Now, God did not call Abram and Sarai to leave their land in Genesis chapter 11 at a young age. It's kind of interesting. He calls them more when they're older, which should tell everybody that nobody in the church body ever used, loses their usefulness in the kingdom of God. God used Moses to deliver the children of Israel at 80 years of age, 40 years in, e in uh, Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. Then at age 80, he's delivering the children of Israel out of bondage. Here, God calls Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, to do something. And he says, I'm calling you forth to leave your land. Come into the land where I shall guide you. And now, through you, I am going to bless your seed and I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your seed. You can imagine how their jaw would say, us? <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to have a baby? Uh, are, are we going to have a baby in the geriatric ward of the hospital? I mean, you can imagine that, you know, you have these two elderly individuals that are saying, we are past the years of childbearing. Lord, how would you use us in this fashion? And as the years roll on, you have to understand that we went from Genesis chapter 11 when he's originally called to then in chapter 16, you can see faith wavering a little bit. And we can question Sarai at this moment and say, you know, Sarah, why would you think that God wouldn't fulfill his promise? Why would you try to fulfill God's promise with your own means, but in reality, this is kind of problematic and symptoms of the human heart in general. We all wrestle with this to some degree, to think that God's not really going to fulfill His promise. That doubt, that feeling of insecurity, is God really going to do what He's promised to do? Is God really going to be with me always, even unto the end of the world? Is God really going to forever love me? Is God really going to guide and leave me, lead me? Is God really here with me at all moments? And we may think that, you know, we don't understand Sarai at this point, but in reality, we all have wrestled with this feeling before. God's given us a promise. He hasn't fulfilled it. 
and we stand in doubt. We've all wrestled with that feeling of doubting God's promises day in, day out. Sometimes when we take our view away from that of the cross and we turn it to the darkness of doubt, we sometimes can be just like Sarai and say, listen, God's not doing what he says he's going to do. I'm doubting. And then we turn our own attention to how we can fix the problem. Now, we should see the end of how this happens. Sarah sends Abram, Abraham into Hagar. They conceive seed. They bring forth a child named Ishmael. Now, this should tell us something about doing stuff our way. Do y'all remember, I believe it was a song by Frank Sinatra way back in the day. Obviously, it was written a long time before I was born, so I'm not going to say I remember when it was written. But I'm sure you all remember that song, right? A song called I Did It My Way. Do y'all remember that? That song, I Did It My Way. And he goes through and talks about how he did it, how he wanted to do it. You know, in ups and downs, but you know what? I did it my way. Hate to break it to us, but doing it our way typically doesn't turn out so well. <laughs> Yesterday, we had Levi's little birthday party, and lo and behold, he loves Transformers and Legos. And guess who is the expert somehow on putting together Transformers and Legos? Well, we had this one Transformer that he's been begging for for a while. It is Megatron from Transformers Prime. I, and I will admit, I have seen every single episode of this cartoon. <laughs> Not because they forced me to watch it, but because it's actually kind of entertaining. And so I was excited that he got this Megatron, you know. And, you know, I was excited when we got it in the mail and I hid it in, in a certain place in the house, which I will not name, or he will start going through that place. And, uh, you know, we hid it in there. And so when he finally got to open it, I was so excited. And then, well, guess who is the expert on transforming? It's me. Well, I start putting it together, I start doing it, I think I can get this, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. I'm not looking at the instructions, obviously, because I'm a man. I don't look at instructions, I don't look at directions, I think I, I got this, right? My, the barometer in my head, the compass is going to figure this out just fine. And then about halfway through, and it's not working, finally somebody says, you know, there's instructions, right? My way didn't turn out so well, <laughs> saying, I'm going to transform this my way. And as simple as that is, and it's funny to think about it, in reality, any time that we think in our heads that we're going to do it my way and according to our own flesh and our own ability, it's going to end up being a shipwreck. It's going to be a train wreck. When I follow my own abilities, my own train of thought, what I think should go well, and I'm not having my feet, my heart, and my mind prepared by the gospel of Jesus Christ and following that, when I'm doing my way, as much as I can think, Sarah, what were you thinking? When I do it my way, I'm no different than Sarah. No different than her at all. And it's such an example for us as we see Ishmael. Now, you may wonder who is Ishmael. Back in yesteryear, most of these Bible characters, everybody knew. We knew who they were. We knew their history. But this one bad choice, this one bad choice would bite the Israelites over and over and over again. This man by the name of Ishmael, this man would be the father of his own nation, right? 
He would be the father of his own nation. And if you didn't know this, this is probably something that will be interesting to you as Bible believers. This man by the name of Ishmael happened to be the father of most of those in the Middle East. What was one of the most predominant nations that always fought against the children of Israel throughout the Old Testament, throughout the intertestamental period, which we call the Maccabean period, even until today, what has been the one thing that, or the one nation that has continually been in conflict with the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The Ishmaelites. One bad choice. One choice of following their own way. You know, Iran, and this is just to give common geography for you, Iran is, uh, stems from, I'm sorry, Iran stems from the Persians, and most of the other Middle East comes from this man that we know is called Ishmael. Is there still turmoil that goes on in our world because of this one decision? Think about how one decision affects so much. One angle deflection, one little drop in the bucket, how it affects so much in life. And this one, this one problem, this one issue where Sarah lost faith for a moment and said, you know, God promised us to see, God promised what he would do, God promised how he would help us, yet what I'm going to do is better than how God has promised, still biting them throughout history, still biting them today. What a testimony to not thinking that mindset of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. <laughs> what a testimony to saying, even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to do it the Lord's way. Consider this in the realm of even religious, um, even in religious functions. When we depart from the Word of God and say, you know what, I think I have a better way of doing it than what's prescribed in the Word of God. I think I have a better way of doing it. In America, and this is just a side note before we get back to the book of Galatians, America is the king of innovation when it comes to religious institutions, right? America, if you want it, they've got a way to give it to you in religious function, but the problem is, you would think if all of the various ways of doing it our way were really good, we'd be the most spiritual nation in the world. Would we not be? We'd be the most spiritual nation in the world of doing it our way religiously in the Christian world sphere. And if saying innovation is the best way of progressing the kingdom of God, if innovation really was the best and key way to do church, I will tell you, we would not have a two-thirds rate of losing children when they hit age 18. The largest denomination in the state of Alabama happens to lose about 90% of its youth when it hits age 18. If innovation was the way and doing it our way, we'd be much more spiritual. And yet we see this example, one bad deflection of saying, I did it my way, worked 
we wouldn't see the problem continue and continue and continue. So we see this one example, this one analogy, this one focus, this one allegory given to us here in Galatians as we turn back to chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, for it is written, verse 22, that Abram, Abraham had two sons, the one of the bondmaid that we just read about from Hagar, Ishmael, the other by the free woman, that is Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. In other words, born after man's own ability, born after man's will. Two ways is born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Now the reason it says it was by promise was because under the context of Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, they could not conceive on their own. As we said before in Romans chapter 4, it says the deadness of Sarah's own body. She could not bring forth a child. So for it to actually happen, it had to be by promise, right? You know, I remind myself that sometimes you see such miraculous events in your own experience. You see a miracle where something maybe unnatural happens. You didn't expect it, or maybe you see providence where God works the natural events, and you're like, how did this happen? You, you see, a miracle is when something goes against the natural, and providence is when God uses the natural. And you see God working on both ends, and you're like, how does this happen? There's no way this could have happened like it did. It's by promise. You see, in salvation itself, we understand it's not something that we've done or incurred God to bless us. It's not something that we are striving to do and get. But salvation is by what? It is by the promise and sovereignty of God in which He actively blesses dead individuals, dead in sins that cannot do anything themselves. He says it is by promise. He gives these two views, one of the bondwoman, one of the free woman. One brought forth a child after man's ability and man's will, and one brought forth a child by promise. He gives us this allegory. And then he begins to explain it further in verse 24. Which things are an allegory? For these are two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. And he's going to basically name the other one, that being Isaac, and Sarah being the other covenant, the New Testament. So he gives us what each one is. And to understand the text, what he's saying is that we have two models of worship here, two covenants given to individuals. You have one of the Old Testament. You have the Old Testament law. You had Moses given up on the mount. He had, you can read through Leviticus and see some of the diverse ordinances that he was given, what not to eat, what to eat, how to live, what to do when crimes are committed, how to act in worship, what to slay for a sacrifice. You had the Old Testament covenant there that he uses Agar to represent. He uses this bondwoman, this servant, to represent the Old Covenant. And then he says there's another covenant, the new covenant. The covenant which we are enjoying right now. The covenant of the New Testament in which there isn't all of those slavish ordinances. 
You know, you think about what we would have to do today if we were Jews of the Old Testament. You know, you've seen that show, Dirtiest Jobs. Um, I can't watch that most of the time. <laughs> it's just a little too out there for me. Um, I told Rebecca I couldn't even be a nurse because of what she has to deal with. Um, just couldn't do it. It took me forever just to change a number two diaper on my children, let alone deal with some of these dirty jobs. You know, finally I got used to it, you know, as they say, baptized by fire. But imagine being a Jew in the Old Testament, dirtiest jobs, and the priest would have to slaughter an animal and then cover everything in the holiest of holy with blood. Everything drenched in blood. You're having to buy animals, you're having to sacrifice, you're having to wear certain clothes, you're having to wash yourself in a certain way. If you touched a dead body, you'd have to wash yourself in a certain way. If a man went to war, he'd have to segregate himself seven days and wash himself a certain way. All of these diverse ordinances, and yet in the New Testament, God, though He reestablishes His, his moral code in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, in the Sermon on the Mount where he describes to us how God's moral standard is not lowered in the New Testament, yet there is now freedom in the New Testament from all of these various ordinances, he gives us this view of freedom. Coming forth this morning, we're able to approach God without this fearful, this slavish fear, whether it be in the ordinances themselves that we have to fulfill, or even, as it were, thinking that we're trying to please God through these actions. It's, it is a blessing to approach God by the merits of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a blessing to approach God knowing that He's not inspecting me for all of my small little imperfections, but He sees me through the new covenant, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's a blessing to believers this morning. That should energize us as we sing hymns and we pray and we study the message of the gospel. That should energize us to further press forward into the kingdom and come with a happy heart to sing because we're not under that old covenant. We're not under the dirtiest job. <laughs> we're not there thinking of how we have to buy a certain lamb, a certain dove. We're approaching God from the heart through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He gives these two covenants, and He gives a little bit of weight to what the old covenant was when He said, it gendereth to bondage, in verse 24, the one from Mount Sinai. Now you can imagine this view of Sinai, a mountain that you saw powerful quaking, you saw lightning, it's kind of illustrated in that movie, The Ten Commandments, where you see this uh, with, um, it's still one of my favorite movies, I love watching it around Easter, and you see that shaking mountain, and you knew if anybody touched it, you would die immediately. The shaking mountain, he says, that gendereth to bondage or slavish fear, servitude, it genders to slavery. You can say, how does thinking that we are to approach God through the law, how is that equated to slavery? How is that equated? And we think immediately of Americanized slavery, but how is it equated to, to chains? 
Because if we're honest with ourselves as we approach God, and if we approach Him through our own actions, our own works, we're going to have to sooner or later admit it's just not good enough, right? Even if I'm thinking that I'm approaching God through my belief in baptism, Lord, look what I did. <laughs> I followed you. Look how much I prayed this week, and look how much that I studied your word this week. And I'm not, you know, saying don't pray and don't read. <laughs> no, that we should. But if I'm approaching God with that mindset, I'm always first going to see somebody who's doing it a little bit better, right? And sometimes I've been to meetings and a preacher gets up after a preacher and gets up after a preacher and it's, it almost turns into a preaching competition. And, you know, I think I'm going to get up there and do it better than the next guy. Well, guess what? Somebody's going to do it better than me and I'm going to fall flat, right? If I'm thinking that I'm comparing myself to the next person. But equally, when I approach God... And I think, well, Lord, I believed. I studied. Well, did I really study as much as I should have that week? Is my belief really as strong? If I'm putting it on anything I'm doing, I'm going to be approaching God with doubts. And this is how it genders to a slavish bondage to put on people these chains of God is only pleased with you if you are doing, if you are following, if you are keeping these codes. It genders to bondage. He says, For this agar is Mount Sinai, meaning in way of illustration and allegory. For this agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which is now, and is in bondage with her children. He says, What you're trying to do you think, you think you're pleasing God. You think you're the children of Sarah, but in reality, you're the children of the bondwoman. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Paul then turns around the argument and says, what truly is the mother of us all, of all believers, is the heavenly Jerusalem, the free woman. It's interesting that he would use this language, the mother of us all. Uh, this is one of the few times in the Bible where it would reference the mother of us all in this sense. Now, there are other times as he is going to go on and quote from Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 27, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry. There is the same illustration that he ties together as being one and the same for the purpose of giving us this hope in Christ. But it's not often used. Why would Paul use that here? The reason he's using this here is because he's showing to them the sense of comfort in knowing who your mother is. You know, I try to be the best dad that I possibly can be, and I fall short constantly, <laughs> over and over and over and over again. Um, I, you know, I, I've said this before, the only perfect parents in the world are those that haven't had children and those that had children so long ago that they forgot how horrible there were. <laughs> those are the two perfect parents in the world. Those that are currently in the trenches know how bad of a parent they are. And so, you know, me as a parent, you know, I remember thinking, I'm not going to do this. I'm never going to yell. Whoo, that one went out the window, right? <laughs> uh, every, day, every evening, Lord, forgive me for yelling today, you know, and it's, you realize how imperfect you are as a parent. But, you know, I try to be very consoling at times when they're in pain and when they're hurting. But there's nothing that comforts like a mother. 
I mean, when my son is hurt, either one of them and their knee is scraped or they maybe have ran into something and hit their head. And I, for some reason, my children look like Dalmatians 90% of the time. I'm surprised somebody hasn't called protective services on us because they look like something. I mean, you got two boys, they're running into everything. They're swinging at each other and it's a perpetual fight. They look like Dalmatians and it, we have this problem. You know, I try to kiss bruises, make them feel better when they have a bad day, but there's nothing like a mother's touch. You know, I've seen one crying multiple times, and I'll walk up and say, son, let me give me a hug. He said, no, I want mama. I'm like, well, thanks. <laughs> Both of them have said this to me on separate occasions. Daddy, we really like you, but we love mama. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative of your liking. <laughs> you, know, and, you know, but they love mama. And boys really adore their mama, even more so. And Rebecca has told me before that boys transitionally, as they hit a certain age, begin to gravitate away from their mother and more towards their dad. But it's still not the same. It's still not the same. But who do boys call when they're in trouble as adults? They call their mama. And you see, a mother is a symbol of comfort here. A mother is a symbol of warmth. A mother is a symbol of who we're looking towards as a representative that we can see brings us a type of peace. As Mother's Day was last weekend, we can think of the mothers that we would look at and see as being that strengthen our life. And as I said last weekend, a good mother turns the head of a nation, right? Mothers are those that have sweat, blood, and tears that really put in the work, that are really knee-deep in mud and in the trenches. And I'm not denying what the dads do. The importance of the dad in our society is obviously seen when we see the exodus of fathers in our society. But to understand how a mother can impact an individual where you don't even have uh, Timothy's father mentioned in the New Testament, yet Paul does mention both his mother and grandmother because that feminine impression in the life of a child is so important. God bless the mothers, amen? God bless mamas. And Paul here uses this symbol of motherhood but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Imagine that feeling of comfort and knowing that your mother is symbolized here as being that heavenly Jerusalem, the strength and the comfort and the warmth that you have and knowing that you are not looking towards some slavish bondage of Mount Sinai. But your mother is above. He says here in verse 27, For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she with which hath an husband. He quotes here from Isaiah, and the image that we're given here of this prophecy is that the barren, Sarah, should rejoice. Because her innumerable seed far exceeds that of just those that are under the old Mosaic law. 
when it says that she hath many more children, what it's saying is that God's children aren't just confined to the nation of Israel and those that were under the Old Testament, but God's children are both Jew and Gentile. That's equally what that term world means in both John chapter 3 and verse 16 and 2 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when he says he's the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, he's not saying all people without exception, but he's saying that God has a people in both the Jewish nation and the Gentile nations, that God's elect children are throughout the entirety of the world, that he has a people, as Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 tells us, out of every kindred, nation, and tongue, God's family is so innumerable that Sarah, through representation, can cry forth because she is not barren, but she has many more children than the law could ever bring, because the law can bring forth none, but it brings forth slavish bondage. But by the promise of Almighty God, she, our heavenly mother, Jerusalem, heaven itself, has many children. He then asks in verse 28, Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children, well he states, are the children of promise. We are as Isaac, brethren, believers in Jesus Christ. We are as Isaac. We are the child of promise. We are born not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, as, first, as John chapter 1 tells us, but we are born by the will of God, by the promise of God. But as then as he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Here's the question. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He asks this question and then answers it himself. What saith the Scripture? cast out the bondwoman and her children. What this means for us, that the way of thinking that is presented in an allegorical form of the Old Testament law, we are to cast out. What that means is if we think that how could God love me? You know, sometimes people ask, Two questions. Sometimes people say, How, why do bad things happen? And then when I see the own darkness of my soul, I wonder why I am even allowed to exist from day to day. People say, why would they read Romans chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, where it says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And they say, how could God hate somebody? But yet when I examine my own heart, my own past, my own mind, and know that God could love anybody, I ask, why would God do any of that? And I, I view myself under this paradigm of depression and frustration and anxiety in two ways, both as I approach God and thinking that He sees me for who I am. And though you see me as the one that's put together on Sunday morning, He sees through that filter. He sees through that. And He sees me for the darkness of my own soul. And that frightens me. And Paul says, cast that mentality out. Because God doesn't see you in the way that you see you. He sees you through the blood of Jesus Christ. God views you as if you have done nothing at all. That word justify, um, Charles Hodges says, it means 
that he sees it's just as if I have done nothing wrong at all. Just as if I have done nothing wrong. But equally, moving from our own position as we approach God, equally casting out that mentality in a practical sense. When you see yourself not as the mistakes that you've made, but through the righteous blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that then frees you in life in general. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. He says we are not that child. We are the child of heaven. We're the child of God. And if we are the child of God, if we are a justified, blood-bought, forgiven child of God, we're going to stop doing like Sarah did and doing it our way. But saying, Lord, according to your promise, I follow. According to your word, I live. According to your righteousness, according to whatever you command, whatever you tell me to do, I will be whatever you command me to be because I am your child. This is why he begins chapter 5 that will begin next week with stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. He tells us to stand fast in that liberty. We've been called by God's grace to a wonderful standing in Christ. Let us see ourselves as God sees us, as redeemed citizens of heaven, to whom we can look as our mother for comfort. May we praise God that we are His children and not overtaken in slavish bondage. Let us think as the gospel thinks and rejoice in that knowledge. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this wonderful message that you have given us through your word. Heavenly Father, let us not focus on where we've been, but Lord, in whom we exist. Thank you, Lord, for the peace we have in your gospel to know that you have promised to us that through your Son, Jesus Christ, that, Lord, we have been declared righteous, we have been justified by His blood. That, Lord, as our sins have been imputed to Him, His righteousness has been imputed to us. And now we are accounted as not bankrupt, but, Lord, we are accounted as heirs of the riches of grace through Jesus Christ. Lord, let us not do it our own ways, but Lord, let us follow your promise. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this promise in your gospel. Gracious Lord, let us know that regardless of how dead the situation may seem, that Lord, your promise is sure, that your church has been promised your presence throughout all ages forever and ever until the end of the world. Gracious Lord, we're thankful for that promise. We beg, Lord, that your promise would be made manifest in us, that, Lord, we would live as free men and women. And, Lord, we would live knowing, gracious God, that you are with us. Lord, bless this church with a sense of that knowledge, with a sense of that freedom, 
with a sense of that liberty. And Lord, bless us to be energized from our heart and our mouth to sing praises here, but equally to sing your praise to whomever that we would be given the blessing to preach your gospel. Lord, let us preach your gospel to this community. In Christ's name, and amen.